This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 122nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, presented by Walt Disney Animation Studios' hit original film Zootopia which is Golden Globe nominated for Best Animated Feature. My guest today is one of the greatest composers and songwriters of all time, a man who has written 48 top 10 hits, including nine that reached number one, whose music has been heard on the radio, on Broadway, at the movies, and at live venues all around the world, and who has won eight Grammys, including the Trustees Award in 1997 and the Lifetime Achievement Award in 2008, three Oscars, two for Best Original Song and one for Best Original Score, and the Library of Congress's 2011 Gershwin Prize for Popular Song, which was presented to him and his longtime collaborator, the late Hal David, by President Barack Obama. His name is Burt Bacharach, and he wrote the music for songs that we all know and love, like Close to You, Anyone Who Had a Heart, Walk On By, What the World Needs Now, What's New Pussycat, Alfie, Casino Royale, The Look of Love, I Say a Little Prayer, Do You Know the Way to San Jose? Promises, Promises, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, Arthur's Theme, Making Love, and That's What Friends Are For. In 2016, for John Asher's Poe, an indie drama about a father and his child who is afflicted with autism, the 88-year-old wrote Dancing With Your Shadow, his first original song for a film in 17 years, as well as his first original score for a film in 16 years. Over the course of our conversation at his home in Pacific Palisades, Bacharach and I discuss how he divided his time in the mid-1950s at the outset of his career between glamorously touring the world with Marlena Dietrich and toiling in obscurity back at the Brill Building in New York, where he first teamed up with Hal David in 1957, how he and David first came to know Dionne Warwick in 1962 and why she became their muse, how he and David created many of their greatest hits and why they split up in the 1970s, what it was like writing instead with his third wife, Carol Bayer Sager, throughout much of the 1980s, and the deeply personal reason why, much more recently, he agreed to contribute his talents to Poe. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Mr. Backrack, thank you so much for doing this. It's uh, an honor to have you on this podcast. And to begin with, we always ask, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. My dad had a job with a clothing store called Wolf Brothers. 
And I guess he was a buyer. I don't remember. I was one year old yeah. when I left Kansas City. And went to New York. Went back east in Forest Hills, Long Island, and to New York City. And that's where I grew up. And when you were there, your father had a different profession, right? Yes, he was a journalist. And a great guy. I mean, you know, you think of all the things you'd like to share with him now mm-hmm. that you couldn't share with him then or didn't get a chance to, too busy chasing a career or whatever, or included him more, I wish I had. He was one of the nicest people anybody ever met. And the good news, though, is that he and your mother, I believe, lived to see some of your success, right? They did. They got to see me win a, a couple of Academy Awards and come to some concerts in, like back east, Westbury. I think they saw Vegas, too. But yeah, that, that's an important one to me, that they were able to be part of it. That's great. And see some of it. Was music a big part of your home life while you were growing up? And just out of curiosity, I wondered who your favorites were at that time. Well, I didn't really like my involvement with music because I had to take piano lessons, which were trying to say the least. I mean, I hated it. I cannot, cannot, I'd have to come home from school and before I could go out and play with a few kids that I knew, half an hour at the piano, practicing, and then going taking piano lessons. No other way to say it other than uh, I, I despised the time. <laughs> I, I sort of liked some things I was hearing in, in the music world, but I didn't like the involvement of me taking piano lessons and playing in recitals. The rigidity of it? You liked, it sounds like later on you liked the sort of exploration aspect, so here somebody's telling you exactly what you have to do. Is that what you were rebelling against you think or not I think I was rebelling against having to sit and practice something that I didn't like doing right I didn't like playing piano I didn't think I was very good I thought I was not even not very good I thought I was bad I thought I really was bad and even though we formed a little band in high school and we played a couple of jobs you know at the school it was a bad band (laughs) it was a bad band Well, and you've once said, I think, in regard to why you even got involved with that band, that, quote, I got into music in the first place to be popular, close quote. Is that, you you had been a little bit of a loner? Definitely been a loner. Deprivation of female company. (laughs) So I thought, well, you play piano, maybe you get to meet girls that way. Right. (laughs) And and did it work out that way? We only played two dates. Only two (laughs) dates. So it took a little while to pay dividends. So talk about your your education after that and when along the way you figured out what you wanted to do. I kind of got caught in the drift. It was not so... I didn't have a formula for what my life was going to be. I knew that I wanted to or should go to college. Mm -hmm. And when you come out of a big high school, I think 3,000 kids at Forest Hills High School, and you're in the lowest percentile in your schoolwork... I don't even know that I even got a, went to the graduation. Mm-hmm. But it was of no interest what they were teaching mm-hmm. at Forest Hills High School. <laughs> they were teaching mechanical drawing and Spanish. Spanish could have used if I'd known what was going to come down the line, but if we all had known what was mm-hmm. going to come down the line. But I just want to get home, shoot a couple of baskets with a couple of friends <laughs> after I got through the rigidity of, of taking these piano lessons. 
and practicing and having my mother saying, you got to keep going. Mm -hmm. But there were a couple of things that were, I like going out to dinner in New York City with my mom and dad and mm -hmm. we'd go to, there were bands that were playing, whether it was the Edison Hotel mm -hmm. or something. And I loved looking at the Mother of Pearl drum sets that, and with the different colors and and then maybe seeing the Harry James big band, mm -hmm. you know. That was a thrill. Then I started really liking music because of what I started to do here on 52nd Street. Like I had a phony identification card <laughs> that let me get into the Spotlight Club, and they were great clubs. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were little clubs. A lot of jazz. The Dizzy Gillespie big band. Yeah. Basin Street East, you got the Count Basie big band. These were moments of just unbelievable sounding music mm -hmm. and where you could hear it live. And, you know, I think that was something that drew me in. Mm -hmm. I know that was something mm -hmm. that drew me to music. And the other thing was, I did hear some classical music that I really started to like. Mm -hmm. The French Impressionist, Ravel, Debussy. You know, I thought it was very, very beautiful. Daphnis and Chloe was one of my favorite pieces. So... That pulled me into music a little bit, towards music. Mm -hmm. I then, because of my low grades in school, I wanted to go to Oberlin. I got turned down. I wanted to go to Juilliard. got turned down. I wanted to go to Eastman. got turned down. <laughs> so I wound up at McGill University in Montreal, which was very provincial at the time. It was not the kind of great city it is now, and smart city, and sophisticated city. But there was music up there, too, and there was Oscar Peterson was playing up there. That was his home. And the Maynard Ferguson big band was up there. So I was being pulled towards not music as a profession, but music as something to, that I enjoyed now mm -hmm. for the first time, mm -hmm. really enjoyed. And then you started hearing Charlie Parker, and they're like... Somebody opened up a door, and it was light, light years away from what anybody else was playing. Mm -hmm. And so after McGill, I believe you went to the New School for Social Research in New York. Then, I guess, it was the Men School of, of Music in New York. And then you really started studying music composition, right? There were a few people who were kind of masters, in a way, who you, really, who you worked with, right? I did. In between that time, though... Before I started with Manus Music School, or but one thing about Eastman, come back to Eastman mm -hmm. again, because the irony of going back to Rochester many years later now, I had had songs that were hits, mm -hmm. and I had a career that was doing well, and I was doing concerts, and I was booked to play in Rochester with the Rochester Symphony at the Eastman School of Music. It kind of was kind of great to be able to say towards the end of the concert how much I've enjoyed being here and making my making music with this fine orchestra. I will let you folks know that I tried to get into the school, but I was turned <laughs> down. So here I am. Right, that's great. Well, you got the last laugh. Again, you you did go on and study with a number of masters en route to going off on your own. One of the things I wondered, though, is you're the son of a man who made his living through words. Was it ever tempting to you to become a lyricist as opposed to somebody who 
focused on the music. No, not really, though. You know, the very first song that I ever had recorded was a song that was public domain, actually. It was um, the Rubenstein Melody in F, you know, very famous. You, you can lay claim to something like that. And my dad wrote the lyric. It was called Once in a Blue Moon. <laughs> and Nat Cole re- recorded it. It was just a B-side, but it's a good way to start out. Absolutely. And, and then go many years without getting anything recorded <laughs> when you started to become a writer. I'm going to ask you about those those tough early years, but first I've got to ask, how did your parents feel about this profession that you were choosing to pursue? Well, I really wasn't chasing it. I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, again, I went being caught in the drift of things. You know, I'm not the other the, the personality that will walk over people, kill people you know, step on people to get to the next place where they want to be. Things just happened for me. I was very fortunate. Things that I might not even considered having the, the guts, the nerve to chase myself. I mean, a couple of examples. Yeah, Ivan Mogul lived in the same building my parents lived in, in New York City. And Vic Damone was getting out of the army at the same time I was. And I didn't know Vic, but but Ivan was friendly with my family. He was a good guy, and he said, "Well, Bert, maybe Bert could play piano for Vic, <laughs> and they could go out on tour." And that's how I got that job. <laughs> and that was good for a while till I got fired because right. Vic fired a lot of people, and <laughs> I was just one of many. Right. And and I guess what we should say is that in addition to working for Vic Damone, you also during this period before you ended up at the Brill Building, you were accompanying, I think, Polly Bergen and Imogene Coca, the Ames yeah. Brothers, a number of people, right? Yeah, Steve Lawrence, right, and Georgia Gibbs. I mean, just like learn the book, go get on a plane and go somewhere and play a weekend. Right. Uh, one had to make a living, you know. And I can't say I was very good at it. You learn how to conduct an orchestra, a house band, wherever you're playing, by trial. And in my case, you know, I was pretty young and young-looking, and guys in bands can be notoriously unpleasant to you. Some young kid telling us what, how to play the note, how long to hold the note. <laughs> Give me a break, you know? <laughs> you should go back to school. So it was, you know, it was like, I got that job with Vic. That's one example. I was with Angie Dickinson, who, and we hadn't married yet, but we were just traveling to England. Years later. Yeah, years later. But I'm showing you how it, how maybe passive I was mm-hmm. through it. And I was at the Dorchester Hotel with Angie. I had gone to do my first television show for ITV or ATV very low-budget show with Dusty was going to be on the show. So we're having hits now. Then we were in the lobby, and Angie ran into Charlie Feldman, who she knew. Mm-hmm. And Charlie Feldman was this huge producer, huge agent. And Charlie said to Angie, well, what are you doing here? And she said, well, you know, I'm here. came over with this guy. What guy? Uh, his name's Bert. What does he do? And she said, he writes music. 
is he any good? <laughs> Angie said, yeah, he's very good. Like, what has he written? What I know. So Angie dropped a couple of titles, like Walk On By, mm -hmm. and he went out of heart. And Charlie said, just a minute. And he went up to the orderly suite where he lived at the Dorchester to uh, Claudette Barrault, who was his lady, and French, and said, you know these two songs? You know, Walk On By. And he went, I love those songs. <laughs> and then Charlie came down and said to Angie, can he score a film? Sure, he can score a film, Angie said. I was clueless about scoring. <laughs> I didn't even know what a rough cut would sound <laughs> like. And that's how I got What's New Pussycat. And that was the first film score that you, you did. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 but again, did I chase it? No, no, no. Could I have chased it? Did I have the, was it in me to behave like that, to be that aggressor? You know? No. Interesting. Never was. So let's, let's jump back to when you now decide I'm not, you're not going to, the company, Victimone or anybody else, you're going to go to New York to 1619 Broadway, this building, Brill Building, that is so famous for the music that's come out of it. I just wonder, why did you decide to to set up shop there, and why did that place become almost like a factory of hits? Well, there were two places. There was the place where Carol King wrote, which was kind of across the street, where Donnie Kirshner had his Alden music and... That was another factory. We were all a little competitive. The 1619 Broadway, they were just multi-offices of uh, music publishers. You'd write either away from the building or we got some office space that Eddie Walpin, who ran Famous Music at the time, liked me and said, you can use it. And it was just like a bad piano and a window that didn't <laughs> open up and how... Hal David smoked all the time, so, you know. It's just, <laughs> but we um, we met, and it was kind of uh, switching partners. You wrote with one person one day and wrote with another person the next day, the person that you wrote with now was writing with someone who you just written with. And it was kind of exciting that way. And then you get in the Brill Building elevator, going up seven floors, a music publisher. And you get in, Jerry Lieber's in the elevator, <laughs> Phil Spector's in the So it was a very exciting time. And while you were there for a few years, really struggling to sell stuff, right? I know there was a period where it was not terrible happening. Yeah. You did acquire a, a fan, I believe, in, of all people, Marlena Dietrich. And I just wonder, this is in 1956 when you guys first met. How did she know about you? And... And how did your relationship with her evolve? The relationship with Marlena was, again, good fortune. It was nothing that I heard. Hey, there's an opening, a job in Las Vegas. I could work with Marlena. Uh, Peter Matz was a good friend, very good arranger, very good conductor, very good musician. Called me at the airport. I was going out to uh, California to see if I could learn something in, at Paramount, how, to, how you score a film or maybe just pick up some knowledge, and but mostly to live with this girl who was an actress uh, who was doing um, a couple of series. And Peter got me, Peter Matz got me at the airport counter, and he said, like, uh, 
I, I got a dilemma here, man. I got, I'm supposed to conduct for Noel Coward the same week I'm supposed to conduct for Marlena Dietrich. <laughs> Can you help me out? Can you? Could you take Marlena and I'll take Noel? <laughs> which I did. I, I said it meant some income, mm-hmm. which I sure could use. And she couldn't have been nicer to me. She was what, like in her 50s at that point, right? Yeah, late 50s. And you were mid-20s? Something like uh, that? Yeah. Let's see. I'm probably somewhere in my 30s. In your 30s now. So were you intimidated? Yeah, sure. She, But she made you feel just great. I mean, whatever I suggested, because then I started to get her to try to sing a little more on the beat, mm-hmm. with a little more comfort, and a little more flexibility. And, you know, it could have gone the other way. She could have said, don't tell me how to do this. I've been doing this. <laughs> right. No, but she listened, and she tried to adapt. And for years, you guys toured the world together, right? You would go back to the Brill building, but you would go off with her quite often, right? Uh, yeah, I would. I mean, you know, she call and say, could you come to Warsaw for one night? <laughs> well, that sounds exciting. Yeah. Getting Warsaw and getting off a plane in a snowstorm at the Warsaw airport, and she's waiting with a big scarf from Dior for you <laughs> to wear so you'll be warm, and a hefty shot of vodka. <laughs> so, you know, the music was not my kind of music, you know. Mm-hmm. It was very, the German songs were German songs. They were like, Heavy Richard Tauber songs. I know that we definitely rehearsed too much. We'd have a band in Paris or on the road, and we would, she'd take eight days of rehearsal. And I didn't know how to hold things together beyond two days. (laughs) The band then goes the other way. Right, right. We've lost them, you know. But what I did get was to be able to see the world in a way I wouldn't have seen it Mm -hmm. in another way. And then you come back to New York, and a year after first going off with her, now it's 1957, and you and how David met for the first time. How did that come about? I know he'd already had a few yeah. hits, right? Again, it was the interchange of people meeting people, right, with Bob Hilliard in the afternoon. You're introduced to how David, Treader. We wrote some bad, bad songs. At the, I mean, in really, the early years, there. Yeah. Oh, please! <laughs> you remember underneath the overpass? No. no. <laughs> Pe- how about Peggy's in the pantry? Right. I mean, really terrible, <laughs> terrible songs. And then we wrote some good ones, and we wrote some good ones that really kind of got away from us the way they were done. They were the way they were recorded, which is probably the key turning point for me as being able to transport my music to the next level which was I think we'd written some good songs an A&R man uh, an arranger had changed some things maybe changed the tempo changed changed a couple of the chord formations in other words they didn't do any justice to the song they made it not as good Mm -hmm. in my opinion Mm -hmm. so I think maybe we lost some songs that way. Mm-hmm. There could have maybe been something. And when I got a phone call in that time period from Calvin Carter. Like 1962 who, we're talking about now. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah. 
you're better with yours. <laughs> no, no, I'm just... It was a long time ago. Yeah. And Calvin Carter, who worked with VJ Records, mm-hmm. and they're out of Chicago. And he had Jerry Butler on the label. And Calvin said, here's what I want to do. I want to come into New York with Jerry, and I want to do this song, Make It Easy on Yourself. But I want you to book the band. I want you to write the orchestration. I want you to run, run it, set the tempo you want make the record you hear. And that's like a license. Creative freedom. I mean, well, somebody's got to open the door for you the first time. Hey, Angie and Charlie Feldman and the Dorchester Hotel opened the door. Right, right. So, you know, I could go from there to Casino Royale and then to Butch Cassidy. And so, right. I mean, but you have to have the one step in, and you get it either by being supercharged and walking over people and I don't know how to do that. Yeah. I, never, I never did. <laughs> now, let's say, though, that because I believe that Calvin Carter call came in 62. Already at that point, after plenty of, of struggle, you and Hal had had kind of two positive things, which were the story of my life and magic moments, right? Yeah, that yeah. really put you on the map. That really felt, I mean, that's after a year and a half. You know, that's after a lot of rejection, a lot of no's, because... You get the nose right there. You play the song for a publisher in his office, not a demo. <laughs> you just play it. And if you're lucky, he'll say, I'll give you money, you make a demo. But he said, no, that doesn't sound like a hit to me. Right. Know? So, uh, yeah, I think what happened is that we got lucky with those two songs. They weren't at all a tip of where I was going to go musically in my life. Story of my life. Like the song. Magic moments, Barry Coma. Thrilled when you get artists like that. And after waiting that long. Felt good. Oh, it's <laughs> joyous. So one question I had was with Hal, was there a, a consistent pattern? Most of the time, were you writing music to accommodate lyrics that already existed or vice versa? Or how? what came first? Went both ways. Mm-hmm. Went both ways. And I, I like, like it that way. I mean... Prime example would be Alfie, mm-hmm. I mean, where the whole lyric was written, and because it certainly had to say what the movie was about, mm-hmm. what this person was about, what the Michael Caine person was about. So I like setting Hal's lyric, and it took me to places that I would not maybe have gone to musically mm-hmm. without that lyric, without setting the lyric. And other times, is there one key example where it worked the other way? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I think I gave him, do you know the way to San Jose? And mm-hmm. I came up with this brilliant lyric. Mm. And it, something about writing, uh, taking words and setting music to it, certainly when we did Promises, Promises, mm-hmm. we had to kind of make it feel like it was seamless coming from Neil Simon's script. So it, it didn't feel like the dialogue stopped and we shifted gears and suddenly there's a song. It felt like the song should just evolve. So the bulk of that material from Promises, Promises had lyrics. Mm-hmm. And some songs were, you know, I mean, were challenging to think, like Promises, Promises, I'm through with Promises. I mean, Jerry Orbach wanted to kill me. I mean, <laughs> well, that, people I'm, have I'm, said that's your hardest song to sing, right? Yeah. It, it, but, you know, you there have to justify what's happening on stage this guy is really pissed off he has been lied to he's been promised jobs he didn't get it he's loaned out his apartment he's now had it 
you just so you have to be true at least I feel for sure got to be true to your subject matter and you got to have the intensity but if you ever heard Dion sing promises promises early on when we first recorded it she floated through it see well you've you've anticipated the next topic that I want to bring up which is that around the same time as that you got that call from Calvin Carter round 62 I believe that Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who also worked in the Brill Building with you and people maybe associate most closely with some of Elvis's songs and others, they were friends of yours, and that may have something to do with how Dionne Warwick first crossed your radar? Yeah. It started with a song that I'd written with Bob Hilliard called Mexican Divorce. And Jerry and Mike, Jerry Lieber, Mike Stoller, were going to produce The Drifters and... They were brilliant in the studio. I learned so much from watching those guys, and particularly watching Lieber. A few years older than you, right? They were a little bit, they'd been doing it a little They'd been doing it, you know. But Jerry, I mean, you go out in the studio, like Bell Sound was, where there weren't big partitions or anything. You had like four guitars. Everything everything was going down at the same time. Three guitars, (laughs) four percussion players, you know, a string section, a couple of horns, background voices, and the drifters, five of them. <laughs> and that's a lot to be sending into the control room. <laughs> but they could do it. So I learned from that. And, and we had this one song, Mexican Divorce, that the drifters were going to do. And background voices. Yeah, Lieber said, so once you rehearse these girls, they're from Jersey, rehearsing for it, so they know their parts, and mm-hmm. which is what we did. And there were four. There, were, there was Dionne Warwick, there was her sister, Dee Dee Warwick, <laughs> Myrna Smith, a cousin, and Sissy Houston, Whitney's mother. Whitney's mother, wow. So they made a glorious sound, <laughs> because they'd all been singing in church for years. Yeah. And they all could sing. Something about Dion just... Maybe the way she carried herself, almost like a star quality kind of look shown through there. So, you know, Dion came in to sing for Hal and myself a couple of weeks afterwards by herself. And we said, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) And got her signed to Scepter Records. And right away, you guys put out a blast of songs with her, just to remind listeners of some... This Empty Place, Wishing and Hoping, Anyone Who Had a Heart, Make the Music Play, Walk On By, Do You Know the Way to San Jose, and on and on and on. I find it interesting because she she did sort of become the voice of Backrack David music. You've said, quote, I always felt much more comfortable writing for the female voice, close quote. Why do you think that was? Well, start with the first part of the question. Dion had this kind of voice that let me challenge her from session to session. I could do one thing. I could see she was capable of that. And I said, she can do more than that. She can sing louder. She can sing softer. She can wider range. And she's musical, and she gets it. And so it enabled me to be able to stretch. Yeah. And comfortably stretch. And we should say eight top ten hits for her first, for her during... The first decade you guys worked together, it worked out very nicely for all of you. 
Now, a year after that, 1963, you wrote a hit for Bobby Vinton, Blue on Blue, which I think was significant, not only in that it made it to number three on the charts, but also that there was sort of a turning point after that for you and Hal, right? There was no more working with other people, right? Yeah, I think you're probably right there. Just from, it looks like on the... Yeah, did I write... The only one I might have written with would have been Hilliard. I'm trying to think, Baby It's You, when was that written? Maybe somewhere in the cracks there, maybe. But once Hal and I were solid, hey, just keep writing together. why mess with it if it's... uh, So I hope we can touch on a few of the the great songs you guys did. I want to first ask you, because we should say it wasn't... While you two worked pretty much exclusively together... It wasn't only with Dion. There were some a lot of other great artists that you gave songs to, and including the Carpenters on the song that was my parents' wedding song, Close to You, which is 1963. And so I've got to ask you about that one as just an example. Well, close, close to you, you probably don't have a clue who the first person recorded that. It was a time I was living in New York, and record companies would sign artists like Vince Edwards, George Hamilton, you know, Richard Chamberlain, television stars that could sing a little bit (laughs) and then try to translate it into a hit record, a hit single. And they'd bring me out from New York and I would do this. I liked being in California. I didn't like the sessions. I didn't like the songs. (laughs) I didn't like the singers. The Richard Chamberlain... It was maybe the worst of all, because I wrote the arrangement of Close to You. And that's the first recording of Close to You. That was him? Oh, my God. And it's so bad. It's one of the... <laughs> and, you know, I have to say that Herb Albert and, and Richard Carpenter just, they took it and put it in another feel and another groove and made it a way better song and another... So credit to them. <laughs> now... A song came out two years after that that I think most people regard as one of the one of the greats. What the world needs now is love. Now Dion had a chance to record that, right? So how did that get away uh, to somebody else? Dion turned it down. You know, she didn't like it. Dion, I think, felt it was a little preachy, and you know, I had such respect for Dion, and also such maybe a lack of confidence in myself. Hey, if Dion didn't like it, then it, I guess it can't be very good. Let's put it back in the drawer. So we were going to record maybe within the year, Jackie DeShannon, and she was in the office, and Hal said, why don't you play that song, you know, what the world needs now for Jackie. <laughs> really? I mean, thinking, Dion, turn this down. And I played a little bit, played the next time through, Jackie started to sing, and I say, oh, Jesus. <laughs> This is a great surprise. Yeah. You, know, you say, this is a great surprise. But you love to be wrong like that. <laughs> that's great. Well, that's, that's one of my favorites. And that same year was, as you mentioned, the What's New Pussycat being the first film that you'd scored. And that really set off a, a string of writing for movies where that's 1965 and became an even bigger hit than It's Not Unusual for Tom yeah. Jones. Next year, title song for Alfie, which... I, I've heard you describe as a personal favorite. Then 1967, title song for Casino Royale. And then 1969, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head for Butch Cassidy. So I just, you know, anything you have to say about those, but just generally, is it different writing for 
a movie than for something, you know, any other format? Well, it's not that I've done a lot of movies, you know. I mean, for the movies I've done, it's very hard to follow a movie like Butch Cassidy because <laughs> it's so brilliant. But my belief system always has been, just like on my first movie, on What's New Pussycat, I hadn't written a note. Weeks were going by, running out of time. I got a whole score to go. I'm just walking around in Hyde Park in London and saying, I got to get. And, you know, I kept looking at the Peter Sellers character, Dr. Fassbender, <laughs> and his craziness and his kind of off, lopsided, tilted. I started fooling at the piano and started to try to match something to his personality that would work musically. Not that it could be a hit. It's a waltz. I mean, it's an, and it's a funny chord structure. And well, didn't you gonna... do something, five pianos playing the same thing, but out of sync, right? Yeah, we had five tack pianos. I mean, so, but I played it for Tom. He came over to the flat that I was uh, torturing myself in. Angie was with me part of the time. I played it for him and he hated it he didn't want, he wanted to do another song like it's not unusual he wanted to be a, a blues shouter you know right here's something in three four with funny chord changes but when we got in the studio and i had it scored with five tack pianos and it was just like it was kind of great and he fell in love with it so it's 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 wonderful when you can be proven wrong it's wonderful when an artist can be proven wrong mm -hmm. When we all can be proven wrong and, and be surprised that way. Well, talk about uh, one thing that I imagine might have surprised you. There were two 1967 songs that you did, The Look of Love, which Dusty Springfield sang, and then I Say a Little Prayer, which Dion sang. Would you ever have imagined that 30-some-odd years later in the 90s, both of these would, would be brought back to huge popularity in Austin Powers and my best friend's wedding, respectively. I mean, it's kind of amazing. It's luck. 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 It's got to be a director that says, but it's not me calling. It's not my publisher calling up uh, the director on, on Best Friend's Wedding saying, couldn't these songs? No. <laughs> it's him saying, I like this song. I like this. I'll put it in. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a testament, though, to you guys that they have that kind of staying power that... Yeah, that's that's a, that's a big one. And... I've been asked about that, and that's, I don't know, were they kind of like a little more complicated than other songs that were being written? Mm -hmm. Were they more sophisticated, more durability? Sure. Now, you mentioned Promises, Promises. For people who may not know, this was the Broadway adaptation of The Apartment eight years after The Apartment came out. This is 1968. You, I, I wondered how that came about and also why you said in a New York Times profile that I read around that, that came out around that time, quote, this has been the hardest thing I've ever done. I have no desire to ever do another Broadway musical, no matter how successful Promises Promises is, close quote. So how did it come about and why was it so miserable? I said that, right? <laughs> well, you know, those were the days that were different than now where maybe you play one place like the La Jolla Playhouse and then try to get it into New York. At the time with Promises, we'd rehearse in New York for four weeks and then take the whole cast out to, say, Boston mm -hmm. and play four weeks in Boston. 
all the time making changes, rewriting songs, writing new songs, taking songs out. So we went to Boston, and after Boston, we went to Washington. And Boston was tough because the second day in Boston, even though we got pretty good reviews, I was under the weather and I had pneumonia and I wound up in a hospital, Massachusetts General. And, uh, you know, I had to hear, you know, these reports from David Merrick, who was the producer, a very good producer, but a real pain in the ass, <laughs> tough guy. David Merrick saying, how long is he going to be in the hospital? We don't know. Well, can we get a piano in his hospital room? <laughs> hey, if, he's, if we don't have some new material by the end of this week, we're going to bring in another writer. So you go in with that kind of thing. You get out. You write the fastest song you ever wrote in your life. Mm-hmm. Feeling like crap. Mm-hmm. Sit there in a hotel with Hal in an afternoon, write, and never fall in love again, which was the biggest hit in the show. Wow. And then, you know, you say, done, done, done. Then you go to Washington, and you stand in the back of the theater for four weeks. You see every show. You stand there back there with Merrick, while Merrick critiques everything Michael Bennett's doing. And, <laughs> and I think we got a hit show, but I can't even tell anymore. All I want to do is get out to Palm <laughs> Springs. And then the conductor... You know, I, I had a hard time with the conductor who, when you go back after the show, after we're out of town, and, hey, uh, listen, what, what was with the second song and the second act with the tempo? And if he says, was it too fast or too slow, you know you got the wrong guy. <laughs> and that's when we made a change and took the guy who's playing the dance music for Michael Bennett, Harold Wheeler, and put Harold in as the music director, even though he never conducts an orchestra. Can you feel it, Harold? That's all you got to do is feel it. Feel what the groove is. Feel what the temp. But that was another one. And then we got to New York, and it opened. And the conclusion of why I didn't want to do anymore is I got this call from Merrick within the week after the show had opened, that Richard Rogers had come to the show, seen it on a matinee on a Saturday or a Sunday, whatever it was, substitute drummer, substitute keyboard player, substitute trumpet player, with five key subs reading the music for the first time. And I was so used to, boy, if we get it right, it goes on the tape. It goes, you know, it's in the box. Mm-hmm. It's permanent. You can't change it. But here, it's, there is no constant, you know. Right. So it's just a different experience, totally. Yeah. I had gotten, I, from everything I've read, I, I got the sense that, or I get the sense that you and Hal David were very different sorts of people. I read that you guys didn't necessarily socialize together, just different things. And that dynamic worked for a lot of years, but what happened in the, the 70s that caused you guys to go your own ways? Well, I own a lot of that, you know, it's... Just my own behavior. We had done something we shouldn't have done, but it looked kind of grand, and I didn't know enough about the industry, and I didn't know enough people in the industry. Like, if I could have gone to Charlie Feldman saying, is this a good idea? 
was this Lost Horizon? This is Lost Horizon yeah. with Ross Hunter. I think it's just about impossible to do an original musical on mm-hmm. film because you get a song and a scene that doesn't work. Well, you write a new song, reshoot the scene. <laughs> so, and I had to stay on because I was scoring the film as well as writing the music. And I was farming out to Shukin and Hayes and letting them write the music because I, and they wouldn't let me on the sound stage because I was saying, it sounds like shit. <laughs> I mean, you guys got to just, where, where, why is the music squashed like this? What are you doing to it? Mm-hmm. Why are you choking it? And they got, they kept me out of the studio, they kept me out of the dubbing room. I mean, it sounds like from another interview you did, that was a, just a rough time in general. You said, quote, I'd fallen out with Hal over royalties. We were both being sued by Dionne Warwick, and my marriage to yeah. Angie was in big trouble. And just that it was a... Well, I think the big one, the big one there was, you know, I'm still working with Sally Kellerman mm-hmm. and George Kennedy and all these people. Well, Hal is in Mexico now playing tennis every day. And I'm thinking, I'm working my butt off. Yeah. And to try to make these kids sing right because we got got all the stuff that we have to do after post-recording. So Hal and I had a deal. We had a five-point split, you know. I mean, I knew nobody would see, even smell a point. It just was an issue. Five points. Call Hal. It's a trouble picture, Hal. I don't think it's never going to, we'll never get a penny. It's a disaster. It just would make me feel better if I could keep on working mm-hmm. with these people. If we at least made it look credible that I get two and a half points, or I get three points, you got two. Though you'll never see a difference. I'll never see a difference. It's just, he said, no. And I basically said, well, screw you, man. Mm-hmm. I don't want to work with you. Mm-hmm. I'll go back and spend another three months on this this terrible piece of work. Wrong. I should have just said, this is the way it was. You made a mistake to myself. Mm-hmm. I should have just said, a friend of mine, a very smart man in this town, said to what you should have done is just say, Hey, we got this problem. We got five points. Let me give you all five points, Hal. <laughs> then it could be all his uh, his credit and problem, right? <laughs> Just get it off you. But don't try to make a deal right, right. on something that there's no deal to be made on. Right. After that period, you began writing a lot of great songs with your uh, with your next wife, who was Carol Bear Sager. We should say, remind people, Arthur's theme from Arthur the movie in 81, Making Love in 81 as well for Roberta Flack. That's what Friends Are For, 82, Rod Stewart. What was it like working with somebody who you were also close to in that way, you know, where it's it's, it's got to be a different experience? No, very different, very different, because you, you're living in the same house, you're going to bed in the same bed. You can't get away from it. <laughs> yeah, very difficult. I, I think... I admire people who work together, live together, have a relationship together, and last. Mm -hmm. It's tough. The last two things before I ask you about Poe, and this is just briefly, some people have theorized, speculated that what distinguished your music from other music of the same time that you were coming up was that 
it wasn't about youthful emotion, sort of longing or infatuation, that sort of thing, but grown-up stuff, desperation, disappointment, sadness. Do you think there's anything to that? Yeah, I do. It's, I think it's a really good point. Not intentional. Mm-hmm. It's just, hey, maybe this is what Hal heard when I played him a piece of music. Mm-hmm. This is what I felt when I read a piece of his lyric. The other thing that I've seen people try to do is group your songs into two categories, love songs and melancholic songs. Is that oversimplifying things? I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, yeah. It's all too specific or whatever. But, okay, so now I've got to ask you, this year you wrote your first original score for a film in 16 years since 2000's Isn't She Lovely, and your first original song for a film in 17 years since Walking Tall from 1999's Stuart Little. Both are for this low-budget independent movie called Poe, and I wonder, first of all, just how it first even crossed your radar. Airplane ride, Virgin, coming out from New York. I'd been on tour last winter, and the guy sitting next to me talked briefly. He didn't know who I was. We talked later on. He said he's he's got this picture. He's he's a director. Mm -hmm. His name's John Asher, who I didn't know. And he said, we're using, um, we're trying to use Close to You to get the rights to. Well, I own Close to You, you know, so you're going to have to deal. But when he told me what the subject was about. He's saying this to you not knowing that he's sitting next to the guy who wrote, oh my gosh. So when he got home, he called his mother and knew everything I'd written. And then, you know, it kind of took its road from there. But the fact that without even thinking about what this, how good the film was. But having had an autistic child myself, mm-hmm. uh, John Asher having had an, has an autistic child, almost everybody connected with the film has this kind of connection. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit scary that it's that large, it's, that that, it's affected that many people. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I said to him, hey, let me, let me see what it looks like and... I'll give you the best possible deal since we control the publishing on Close to You. Mm-hmm. It's a low-budget picture. I saw the opening, the funeral scene, and said, sure, you know, hey, subject matter above all. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I was like, I think we were on tour and winding up in New Zealand, and I got a, a rough of the film. And I watched it a couple of times uh, on Sue's computer and uh, mm-hmm. thought I was very touched. We should say for people who haven't yet seen it or might not know about it that there's a parent with a child who has autism at the center of this film. Right. A single father trying to raise his child. His wife has died of cancer way too early. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of nerves in, in its course. So I watched it a couple of times. And I called John, I said, maybe, maybe I'd like to take a shot at, at scoring this film. I mean, I just feel it. And I think one of the things that is, you know, the film can do without touting how great it is, I think it's a very good film. I really think it's a very touching film. Mm-hmm. But it accomplishes something by exposure. Something like 67 or 73 kids a year mm-hmm. are or, born with autistic problems, issues. So 
can raise that awareness. I mean, Cheryl had no problem. I called Cheryl. Cheryl Crow. Yeah, Cheryl Crow. And I just said, told her about the song, told her about the picture. And she said, yeah, I've, my good friend has an autistic. Send me the song. And I made the track here and sent it to her in Austin. And I think she was in Asheville. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And recorded it and very lovingly and, hey, whatever happens, you know, I'm glad I was in it for the ride. And if we can raise an awareness through any means. Well, and also we should kind of note that I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, correct me if any of this is wrong, but it seems like in a way it was a tribute to your own daughter who I, I know January 4th will mark, I think, 10 years since her passing and you had an interesting experience in that it was, for most of her life, I don't think people even knew what to call what she was dealing with, I'm right? Glad, I'm glad you brought that point up, because when Nikki was born, 50 years ago or something, nobody knew what autism was. So it was a very complex thing. We had no idea what was wrong with her, and there was no doctor saying, well, she has Asperger's, and no amount of therapy. She could have had therapy every day of the week mm -hmm. for the whole year, and it wouldn't have made any difference. Mm -hmm. We tried treatment centers. And of course, what I found out later on, I never would have, done, I never would have tried to get her well that way, because she couldn't center. get well in conventional ways. Right, right, right. So, you know, that created... What, what could you have? You couldn't have known. But I know she was very proud of the, of the fact that you were her father and did, you know, your, your music and all of that. Uh, I hope she was. Yeah. So as a final thing here, I just want to ask you your, your sort of the first thing that comes to mind about just a few quick rapid fire things. So what's the song you most wish you'd written but didn't? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you could take uh, most of the Jerome Kern's songbook. Okay. What's the song you most wish you hadn't written but did? Well, I'm glad I wrote The Blob. Yeah, oh, that was, yeah, a great sci-fi movie, 58. Yeah. You've said that when you would write music before having lyrics provided, you would come up with your own temp lyrics. Is that true? Yeah, that is very true. When I started writing the orchestration, so I put on, like, trumpet parts, maybe a three-note phrase, boom, 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 see? And to notate that maybe would be the length of a note and the second note, the velocity, specifics like that. But if I could come up with three words that kind of said the same thing, even though they made no sense at all. When I first did it, guys' trumpet section looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> but they understood. I'm basically saying, sing, sing the words. Mm -hmm. Just sing the words. They make no sense, but sing the words and it'd be different than you just playing notes on a piece of music paper. Mm -hmm. So do, do you feel that you definitely needed a lyricist, or could you have made as many great songs if you had had to do the lyrics? Definitely, definitely needed a lyricist. Yeah. Those were not real lyrics. They were right. just dummy, <laughs> total dummy lyrics to get a trumpet player to play it like he was playing a, a lyric. Right. Which of today's big musicians or, or popular music do you most admire and respond to? I love Alicia Keys. I think she's just... Stevie. Stevie's great. Sting. Mm -hmm. I mean, with Elton. I mean, giants. Mm -hmm. 
true or false, you once talked with Dr. Dre about working together. Well, we did stuff, you know, on the At This Time album that Rob Stringer, very supportive of. It uh, got nominated for a Grammy. It even won a Grammy. And, you know, Dre gave me some drum loops. And I wrote, because it was right at, it was my most political statement I could make, you know. It was right when things were just a total mess. As not, they're not a total mess now, of course. <laughs> but with you know Iraq what, what what happened with Iraq, with the Cheney and my anger. I mean, the one lyric that with Tony O'Kay that's in there. I mean, it's just who are these people that keep telling us lies? And how do we get control of our lives? And who will stop the violence because it's out of control? Make them stop. Mm-hmm. You know, it's and it was kind of very angular, severe, mm-hmm. cutting music string. But with Dre's loops, he was fine with it, you know. How would it be different if you were starting out today as opposed to when you did? Would you, would you and could you be as successful? Oh, I think if I was starting out, I'm, I'm glad I wrote so many of the things that I wrote when I wrote them because I think it's just, there's not that kind of place for really some good solid songs, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Because everything is so disposable. You know, I thought there for a while, well, some things can be that are good, they're catchy, they stick with you. In sync, you know, Backstreet Boys, they're having one hit after another. Mm-hmm. I thought, and that's really good stuff. Mm-hmm. But it became like ear candy, you know? Mm-hmm. Three months later, you never would hear it again. Right, right. Just the pace of it is so. Yeah. At this point, what keeps you making new music? You know, it is sort of like what I'm supposed to do. Sometimes I have to force. Uh, it's, it's what I've done. Even if I don't write anything any good, just let me keep my fingers wet. Finally here, uh, many years from now when we're all gone, what would you like people to remember most about Burt Bacharach? I was a good father. Mm-hmm. I've got these two kids with Jane. Oliver, who's 24, just turned 24. Raleigh was 21. I, I don't know when, and Chris, who's 31, but it's with Carol. Something about when you have kids at a time that most people won't have kids, mm-hmm. don't even think of having kids. <laughs> it's too late for them, you know. But this is the way it went, you know, mm-hmm. and to have kids that late in life. I, everything shifts, the whole value, the, the importance that they bring to your life and the value and that's that's what it's all about that's great well thank you for so much great music thank you for this hour and really appreciate it glad to do it